Jolie, your branding badass, and welcome to my new podcast, Branding Matters. Today I'm sitting down with Chris Neeland, the co-founder and CEO of Cult Collective, North America's leading marketing engagement agency. Chris is also the founder of The Gathering, a Forbes top-rated business summit and a masterclass for brand and business leaders looking to reap the benefits of a cult-like adoration. This celebrated author, speaker, and marketing maestro knows that true customer engagement isn't about getting people to buy, it's about getting people to buy in. I invited Chris to be a guest on my show to learn about cult brands and discuss what they do differently to foster a community of users. I also wanted to get his point of view on loyalty programs and what, if any, their role plays in branding. Chris, welcome to Branding Matters. Thank you. So thanks really for being here. I really appreciate it. Marketing, advertising, has that always been something you wanted to pursue? You knew that from young I age? I think so, yeah. yeah? I, mean, I, I didn't know. I, my dad was in marketing, so my, you know, he was my first sort of role model. Okay. Uh, I, I've said before that I didn't really ever understand what he did. He just seemed to always like his job. And as a kid, you know, I, I didn't appreciate then how special it is to have a job that you decided to go to work to. So let's get right into um, your company now. Can you tell us about how you started that and what was the impetus and where'd you come up with the name? If I was king for a day, <laughs> build the kind of business that I really wanted to not only sell but work at. What would I do? And um, did some introspection and, and had some uh, Sherpas sort of guide me along a new journey that led to my business partner and it led to our positioning and it led to the creation of a whole different type of species of agency that we call an engagement firm. And um, we were trying to punch above our weight and become noticed. And the idea of cult was very provocative, but it's also very descriptive because that's what we wanted to do. We didn't want to help businesses get more customers. We wanted to help businesses create cult-like followers. And um, there was some ideology that was already existing at the time about the culting of brands and um, how businesses were transforming into communities, how religion was dying, but brands were filling that void of purpose and, and uh, social, socializing with others. And so we were kind of just fascinated by that. And so we kind of went all in and birthed that in 2012. Wow, that's awesome. So you talk about cult. I mean, I, I love that word. I think you're right. I think it's very provocative. Did you ever come across anything or have you ever thought that there's a negativity attached? We thought that we would lose some employees. We knew that we would lose some clients and we loved that. We we think the world is way too vanilla. The mint chocolate chip with pistachios. <laughs> I remember frequently uh, in the first couple of years in talking with potential clients, them saying, I just don't know that my board or my boss uh, is going to, you know, how they're going to feel about working with a company called Colt. Colt, right. And I, and I would say, <laughs> then let's part ways now because our name is the least controversial <laughs> that we're going to ask you to do. So it was yeah. a great sort of litmus test early on of who was really interested in making a statement and being bold and being provocative versus who just likes to play it safe and was not looking to disrupt anything. And we only wanted to work with the most courageous sort of disruptors. We yeah. call them surgeons. Uh, and so, yeah, our name and even our process, I mean, everything about us was 
weird and inconvenient. At one point, we'd even joked about, not joked, we had seriously considered like answering the phone, like, hello? And they'd be like, yeah, is this cult? We'd be like, how did you get this number? And, <laughs> yeah, we'd be like, who are you? Like, make it like a speech. No kidding. Kind of, where you right. had to know the password or the handshake in order to get yeah. past the gatekeeper. And the irony is that, you know, people want to be part of that. I mean, they sort of all of a sudden now you're this, you know, use the word cult, but, you know, you talk about the speakeasy, like, how do I get in, right? And so there's that aspect to it. So you talk about um, cult and, you know, you talk about the eight specific marketing beliefs and behaviors to reach cult-like status. Um, so what are those? And are these things that you go through before you decide whether or not you want to choose a client or do you do it after you choose the client? No, they don't have to be currently adhering to these eight principles. It's just essentially there has to be an, a, a willingness to explore a different playbook. So the two things that are not very cult-like is an over-reliance on mass media and the overuse of markdowns or discounts. And that is where 90% of marketing budgets go today is into advertising and the sales promotions. So if that's how you're choosing to compete, you're just basically saying, I have no ambitions to be special. I just need to be on sale and drive traffic in an attempt to be quasi-successful. Yeah. And we like people that are much more motivated. I want to be significant. I want to be special. I hope that that materializes into financial success, but I'm here to create legacy. I'm here to be part of a movement. I'm here to disrupt. I'm here to challenge. And so uh, for them, financial rewards are an outcome, but not the goal. And so uh, these eight principles were simply observation from looking at brands that had achieved enviable levels of significance and success, and then comparing and contrasting them against brands in their same category that were very mediocre. And it was amazing how the playbooks of the mediocre brands were very similar, and the playbooks of the cult brands were very similar, but they were two completely different paradigms and practices within those companies. So. We simply try to codify it. It's the foundation of our consulting practice. It's the, it's the criteria upon which we evaluate brands to honor at the gathering. It's the, it's the research that's gone into our book. I mean, there's no, there's no crazy you know, silver bullet in there. I think most people would say, would give lip service to, yeah, I want to do that. Uh, but the reality is they don't. They don't actually have the courage to stray from the historical precedents that kind of got them to whatever levels of success they're taking the risk. So can you share what those are? Yeah, of course. Or some um, of them? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, so it's, the, the, there's, um, I'll give you three of the eight. I mean, that, we could yeah, do a whole course. podcast on yeah. all eight. Um, I kind of like the to top talk three. about the, the newest, the most popular, or the most, the newest, the most important, yeah. uh, and the, uh, I think the most controversial. So the, the most important deals with remarkability and really getting marketing back into uh, the conversation about products, services, and customer experience. Unfortunately, within most organizations, marketing has very little input on product, service, or customer experience. Somebody else is con uh, concocting those, and then they're going to their marketing department and asking them to promote it, communicate it, storytell it, discount it, whatever it might be. But you know, going all the way back to Philip Kotler's classic four Ps of marketing, marketing used to be about product, price, 
uh, place and promotion. And now it's just promotion, 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 promotion. And product defaulted to other departments, accounting, operations, research and development, whatever it might be. So we, we try to um, get the organization to appreciate and to elevate the role of marketing within more important things than just the superficial words and pictures that they put on packages or in advertising. And we use the word remarkable. That's a very intentional word because it doesn't mean exceptional. The synonym to remarkability is not exceptional. It is noteworthy or buzzword or what will people remark about. And one of the attributes of cult brands is they, they reap tremendous benefits of word of mouth and advocacy. If a C-suite cannot agree on the single most remarkable thing about their, their, their company, and rarely do they ever, then how are you going to ever get the marketplace to associate that, you know, your brand with that level of remarkability? So it has to start with the upper management and then it has to go to the rank and file and the frontline employees and the customer service agents and all those people. And then you have to take it outward into the marketplace. And that's just the opposite of how most advertising is done today. It's they say, you just tell us what you want us to say. We'll make it funny or emotional or clever and we'll shout it out to the masses. And we don't even know or care if it's as awesome. And the opposite could affect too, because if the advertising and marketing, everything is so out there, but then the actual product isn't remarkable, it could actually backfire. Fastest way to go bankrupt is to do superior exactly. advertising on an inferior product. Exactly. Because, yeah. you know, and I think Groupon was the, is the poster child of that, of Groupon introduced everybody to, you know, try everything once, a dry cleaner, a restaurant, exactly. a car to, and, nobody ever went back and it's why a lot of those companies went out of business and it's why groupon's a, a, a you know a shadow of its former self yeah. because it was a flawed premise so that was one can you share yep. one or so two more? then the um so that's the i'd say the most important so the newest is this idea of co-creation so really enabled in the past decade via social media and mobile devices marketing has shifted so from 1950 to say 2010 the single most important thing a marketer could do is talk well, uh, you know, a, a clever ad, a radio script, a TV commercial. I, I'd say around 2010, the paradigm shifted to now the most important thing a marketer can do is listen and respond. And so the idea of listening and not just through, you know, comment cards dropped in the box at the front of the store, but whether it's a passive or, or, or uh, active listening on social media, um, co-creation groups. You know, I look at somebody like a Lego. Lego fired their research and development department, created a community of Lego master builders. It's now 10,000 people strong and get all of their new product development ideas from customers. Oh, many times, none of them are even compensated. They're doing it as a hobby. And so uh, I think that marketers have got to learn how to create better listening skills and then how do they more quickly react to what they hear? And you see, you know, there's, there's modest examples of it. Tim Hortons asks us to pick which donut we want. Gatorade asks us to vote for what flavor we want. EA Sports asks us to vote for which player they want on the cover of the Madden video game. Mm -hmm. And those are not bad, but they're, 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 the, the, they're the superficial layer. This is an onion that the deeper you peel, the more you can start to bring the voice of the customer into the boardroom and we subscribe to the idea that customer engagement metrics are actually even better than sales or financial metrics because sales metrics are always historical 
but proper customer engagement metrics can be both predictive and prescriptive of what you need to do in the next six months, not how well did you do in the last six months to stay relentlessly uh, relevant. So we're huge fans of co-creation and, and we don't think most organizations are doing it well. There's four ways to make money. Get more customers to buy more product more often at higher margin. One of those is effective at advertising. Go get more customers. The other three, get existing customers to buy more product more often, is all about retention. And marketers have gotten distracted by putting most of their energy into the go get more customers bucket. Yep. As opposed to go spend more time nurturing mutually beneficial relationships with your existing customers. And if done well enough, they'll go get more customers for you. And that's where you can lean into the power of word of mouth. And that's your whole advocate versus advertising, right? We'll talk about that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay, and your third one. So the third one is kind of fun because it's the most controversial, but it's called picking a fight. Most brands create some lip service, mission, vision, values thing about what they stand for. Uh, we think a far more interesting exercise is to articulate what you're fighting against. Who's your villain? What's the bad guy in your story? And the, the better you can articulate that villain, then you can start to rally other people uh, to your cause who also despise that villain. Politics, and particularly we just come off the U.S. election, have bastardized this principle. So they've taken the principle of picking a fight and it's turned into mudslinging and it's, they've created a villain who is their opponent. That's not, that, that's not inappropriate. It's just executed poorly. Uh, because it, and Canadians hate it. Americans are more comfortable. Because <laughs> we're so polite. <laughs> yeah, this idea of some personal attacks. But you can think of more tactfully executed attacks would be, I'm a Mac, you're a PC. I'm a Pepsi drinker, you're a Coke drinker. I'm a Burger King, you're a McDonald's. Yeah. I'm a uh, Popeye's chicken sandwich, you're a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. I'm a Mercedes, you're a BMW. I'm a Ford, you're a Chevy. So there are many, many brands that have endeared themselves by not just talking about what they do, but by putting their opponent in an unfavorable light and by picking a fight against that. And then there's other brands that don't, their villain is not an opponent, is not a competitor. Their villain is an injustice. So you get like swell water bottles. Their villain is plastic water bottles that are ruining the planet. Mm -hmm. Patagonia's villain is government and corporations that are destroying open, you know, nature and open places. Uh, you know, Pat, uh, Tesla's villain is not General Motors. Tesla's villain is the combustible engine. Right. And, and, and so uh, we really like conversations that help brands to define what they're fighting against, because now you have the one two punch of you should like us. And you should like us because we, we, we despise the thing that you despise. Do you think that you can do that without necessarily knocking down your opponent, but by talking about your positives and then just bringing up sort of the pain points or the negative aspects of what that other brand represents without cutting down? Yeah, this principle is the most controversial because when done poorly, you're taken to court. Yeah, you know, yeah exactly. Right. Um, and there's just a lot of people who are, who are easily offended. There's way too many C-suites terrified of any negative conversation. But like when, when Nike puts Colin Kaepernick in an ad, Nike's not attacking Reebok. Nike's attacking a social injustice around Black Lives Matter. And they know 
49% of their customers are going to get pissed and they don't care. And that's why Nike is one of the greatest brands on the planet because they understand the pros outweigh the cons. And so one of the exercises that we do with Pick a Fight is we'll talk to the C-suite about their tolerance for negative press, their tolerance for a customer that's going to complain. And if that gives them hives, we move on. It's like, don't even attempt it. This is the darker arts of cult branding. It is not for the faint of heart. You can still achieve cult status. You know, when I think of Airbnb, one of my favorite cult brands, their villain are the stereotypes and discriminatory practices that prevent us from wanting to have a world where you can belong anywhere. So they go after, they're very vocal around LB. GTQ issues. They're very vocal. When I remember when Cuba got opened up, Airbnb was boots on the ground first, allowing Americans to go back to Cuba because that's the ethos of their business is to create a world where you can belong anywhere. And we will fight against policies, laws, practices, prejudices that prevent people from doing that. And so there's a lot of people that, particularly millennials, that are very excited about interacting with companies that don't just you know, exist to transact or to make a dollar, but they're trying to make a difference in the world. Absolutely. The, um, the, the more important, uh, or I should say the more egregious sin, I think, is not cult brands trying to become cult-like and you know, clumsily achieving their way to that status. It's brands that have opted out that shouldn't have. There's, there's way too many brands that have settled for a degree of mediocrity when I look at them oozing with potential, I think of them as like my teenage children. Like I look at my kids with so much potential and it just kills me when I see <laughs> them giving up, their, you know, wasting their hours away on mindless activity and, and, and not striving for excellence. Uh, and, you know, I can't, I, I didn't either as a 16 year old. So they're figuring things out. But I mean, it, it really almost breaks my heart when I go into organizations that are oozing with cult brand potential, but either out of fear or lack of creativity, lack of courage, lack of imagination, uh, they're just playing defense. They're, they're happy. Hey, we grew 6% last year. And like, who decided that that was the goal? Why didn't you double last year? You know, like you could have done so much more, but you settled. And so I, you know, I try and I'm very ineffective at it, but I, because I don't know exactly how to motivate. Some people need a good kick in the butt. Other people need, you know, uh, social proof. Other people need to be uh, coaxed and coddled along the way. And I don't know how to, you know, I, I'm kind of one way. I'm kind of uh, one one tone, which is poking people to stay uh, more more drill sergeant. You know, good. I, I grew up in that Texas football mentality. The best way to get something out of your players is to, you know, push them. Yell, yell at them. Oh. <laughs> you know, you know, get them, you know, kind of convince them that they can't. So they find that internal fire to prove you wrong. And I've, I've come to appreciate that only motivates a small percentage of the actual uh, population. But you know, my, my message to most brands is you don't opt out until you have exhausted every possible what if, because the chance that if you could be more cult-like, it not only is going to result in better business performance, it's going to result in a better career you're going to be happier. Uh, cult brand leaders and their cultures and their team members, because you're, you're going to work with a spring in your step because you're not just trying to make your shareholders rich. You're literally trying to make the world a better place where you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before. So it's more stimulating 
and it's more rewarding. So my message to your listeners and to really everybody I can get my hands on, <laughs> let's go on a journey together and see, you know, almost like think of it like a high school career aptitude test. Like let's, let's have, let's take you through the process to see, do you actually have, a, are you more cult worthy than you've given yourself credit for? You're very passionate about it. <laughs> you can yeah. tell. Well, it's my life's work. It's, yeah. um, you know, and, and, it, and unfortunately, like I said, it sometimes comes across the wrong way, but it is, it's my belief in the, uh, the power of these tools. It's kind of like if I had discovered ice cream for the first time and I'm talking to you and you're like, no, I'm fine with my And you're ice. like, no, you got to try <laughs> You understand how delicious this is. You got to try Well, I know. I feel I know. like I'm that way most of the time. Yeah, I'm, I totally get you. So I read a quote that you said, um, where you said 80, 82% of consumers are disappointed by brands and 77% of brands could disappear and nobody would care. So yeah. tell me about that quote. Why is that? That's a really interesting. Well, so that was research done. One of them was by Havas and one was by Forrester. So it's, it's just data that we found. We didn't yeah. really do it. You're seeing some of that right now with mm -hmm. COVID. I mean, businesses are going out left and right. Absolutely. Um, I can still find a restaurant. I can still go to a store and get a haircut. I can still go buy it. Well, you don't get haircuts. <laughs> I know. I don't know where that example came from. You get your so, beard changed. <laughs> um, you know, and I can still go get a good burger. So, I mean, it, you know, part of it is a first world nation problem where we just were over saturated with commoditized goods and services. Yeah. But I think what they're, what it's really saying is two things. It's, it's consumers screaming, be more important to me than you are because you're just irrelevant. It doesn't mean that I'm not shopping you, but like, I don't go to London drug because I love London drug. I go to London drug because it's on the street corner closest to my house. So London drug might think that I'm a really loyal advocate. I'm not, I'm not referring people to London drug. I'm not, I'm not loyal to them. If I'm going home past a Walgreens, I'll hit that one instead. So they have these false senses of security that somehow transactions equals advocacy and it doesn't. Uh, but it's also saying that being disappointed by brands, how much have you literally thought through all aspects of your customer experience? We had a client that wanted us to spend millions and millions of dollars on advertising to get more people into the door. And yet they had a two and a half minute IVR hold system when you called them that was mind-numbing and obnoxious. Yeah. And we kept saying, take $60,000 out of your multi-million dollar ad budget and get it to where I can talk to somebody oh. in 10 seconds or, you know, or answer the phone. And, you know, we still sit in horrible waiting rooms. We still, you know, I, we work with the Cadillac Fairview. And I remember one of the things they did, and this was even before COVID, is that you could go online to reserve your appointment with Santa. Something that Disney taught us years ago, the idea of a fast pass and you know, the least enjoyable part is waiting with your three-year-old who's hyperactive oh, you know, for 45 minutes to get on Santa's lap. So yeah. somebody just thought, let's be more thoughtful about what that experience is and you know, take some paid media money out of paid media and put it into customer experience. And I mean, there's literally hundreds of examples of just tiny things that marketers should be doing to improve the interaction with the brand that they're not doing because they're using their money to promote sales and discounts, thinking that bribery 
is a better uh, motivator than actually an enjoyable experience. You go online and you can't get a friggin' live voice. You have to press nine and then three and then eight and then you, I mean, it's a nine, and then you hang up. Eight years ago, Amazon <laughs> came out with one click to order. Ugh. To this Amazing, day, eh? how many websites do I you know. go to with one click to order? Oh, None. It's, yeah, it's, it's like, frustrating. How is Amazon, I mean, that innovation is not a secret. Oh. Amazon's success is not a secret. And yet most businesses are not copying the way that Amazon has made it easy to order, easy to ship, easy to recommend other products. Easy to return, everything. To it's, return. The it's like, guys, they, yeah. like the playbook is right there in front of us, and oh, yet no. we refuse to do it. And a lot of people will say, but we don't have enough money to do it. And I'll first say, how much money are you giving away in margin by discounting the hell out of your product? And how much money are you spending on mass media? Those are two buckets of money that you can start to deplete to create a better experience for your customer. And how many customers do you think they're losing because people are on hold and they go screw this and they hang up and they go to the next one or they go on a website. And I can tell you, I work with my suppliers. I'm on websites all day long and I do everything with on websites. And if I go on a website and I'm looking for like a jacket or something and I go on and that website is brutal and I can't find it, you know what? I go off it and I go to my the competitor and I do, and if theirs is easy, I go with them. So if it's not sure. easy, fun, good experience, they've just lost potentially who knows how big of an order, right? So it's also the loss income that they're not getting. So you talked about loyalty, um, loyalty programs, and you say, you know, you're not going to get my loyalty by being the cheapest. What's your take on loyalty? And give me an example of a good loyalty scenario. Well, I think it's really important to distinguish there's a huge difference between loyalty and loyalty program. So most businesses say, okay, it's, you know, as a competitive differentiator, or frankly, what we're seeing more and more nowadays is out, out of a competitive or category necessity. Everybody in my category has a loyalty program. So I guess I have to have one too. They're creating these programs and they're assuming that my signing up for your program or my opting in for your email is translating into loyalty. And it's not. What it's saying is, if you're willing to allow me to buy stuff cheaper, I would rather spend less money than more money. So I'll take you up on that offer. Yeah. And on one end of the spectrum, you have the bed baths and beyonds, which ironically just went out of business or the <laughs> banana republics or the old navies of the world, where I would argue you are a fool to ever shop those stores without a coupon because they're sending five a week. We were doing a project with Chili's Bar and Grill and Chili's was sending out, I think the equivalent of 300 offers per customer per year to come in and get a free appetizer, a free dessert, a free drink, a free margarita, whatever. It's just like, just please come, please, please. You know, I'll, I'll basically pay you <laughs> to come into my store. That's not loyalty, right? No. That's just people that like Driving. to have it. Yeah, it's, it's people that like to have a deal. You know, I think it's something like, the, I think the greatest loyalty, both, I don't know, I'm torn between Starbucks and uh, Amazon as their greatest loyalty programs. I mean, Amazon, you pay to join their loyalty program. And you can do the math to say that membership is going to pay for itself after X number of shipments. Starbucks's loyalty program is more about convenience just pay by tapping the phone, put it yeah. on the card, you know, get some extra little perk. So I do, I'm not anti-loyalty program. I just think most businesses that have loyalty programs have really just created an incredibly expensive discount program that now, is, you know, requires points adjudication and administration and a new currency and 
uh, all the CRM activity when in reality, that money would have been better spent doing things like Tesla. Tesla doesn't have a loyalty program. Lexus doesn't have a loyalty program. They just have experiences that result in unbelievable off the chart, not only repeat purchase, but advocate referrals. And uh, so I think we have to just think differently about what a program is. It's, and the average consumer now has 29 plastic cards in oh. their wallet or their purse, yeah. and they're disengaged with more than half of them. But yet it's created a false sense of hope or security that those brands that administered those cards now somehow think we've got 8 million members in our loyalty program. That doesn't mean you have 8 million loyal customers. It just means you have 8 million people that figured having a deal was better than no deal. Yeah. Can you think of a cult brand that has that loyal following using the cult sort of, I'm doing quotations, no one can see me. <laughs> Many of them do, but I mean, the, the, the crown jewel is the Harley Davidson owners group, the right. hog program. It's one of the oldest. It, um, it does not offer points or currency. Uh, the data is off the charts in terms of hog members spending more on the brand, but it, because, it was because Harley realized that the best way to get Chris Nealon to buy a motorcycle. Do you have one? No, no. I don't. My, <laughs> I, I, I actually would. We worked with Harley for many years yeah. and they, they offered me an amazing deal on one. And my wife said I had to choose the bike or her. Or her. And you kind of paused for a second. Yeah, like, okay. it was, a, it was uh, three days later I came back. <laughs> yeah, so... so. Um, it was, I mean, but Harley, you know, it's get Chris's friends to ride bike. Bike riding in particular is a social activity. That's why, you know, there's biker gangs. Uh, we just actually started watching Sons of Anarchy the other day. Oh, wow. It's like there's a culture of, and you see it with lots of things. You see it with yoga. You see it with uh, high-end performance cars. You see it with bike riding. You see it with paintball. You see it with fishing, you know, mountain climbing, all these groups these are not solitary things. You do them with other people. So the best brands, you know, and one of my other favorite groups is Yeti. You know, Yeti's selling a $400 cooler. Their competitor is selling a $49 cooler, a Coleman at Walmart, right? So yeah. it's not even in the same league, but Yeti is about facilitating an outdoor lifestyle. Coleman is about keeping cold beverages cold. And so, you know, it, Yeti attracts a community of people and their ability, or Nike did the same thing with their running community, right? It's like if you're going to run marathons, one of the things you love to do is track your time with other people. And running can be lonely. Running can be dangerous if you're a bunch of women. So you go you know, as a group in the park on Saturday morning, whatever it might be. So cult brands think about how do you foster the community of users and then allow that not only listen from a co-create standpoint, but then there's brand extensions into that group. You know, the reason why Apple bought Beats by Dre was because Apple had something started with, I mean, you've got to remember the iPod kicked off the Apple revolution, not the iPhone. So they were already into yeah. music. And, but iTunes music and the co-creation of listening and allowing people to put playlists together. Who's that barking? <laughs> oh, can you hear the dog? That's okay. I Sorry. Hear. What kind yeah, of dog is it? I, That's all right. It's an obnoxious little uh, terrier pug mix. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know about you, but we have a stupid number of packages that get delivered to the house nowadays. Oh yeah, so speaking the of dog Amazon, is, right? The dog is is uh, yeah is guarding yeah. us from those evil Amazon deliveries. Well, this is the world we live in today, so it's okay. So uh, anyway, continue on. Sorry, you were saying about loyalty should be measured yeah. by the strength of the community. And the, and the benefits of that community in terms of their ability to repurchase 
or refer, not in terms of number of likes, number of email addresses, or even you know the, the number of transactions. Because it's not about how much you transact; it's more about it's more about share of wallet, right? Like so, McDonald's might think I'm super loyal because they get three visits for me a month. What they don't know is that with three teenage boys in the house, I'm going to a burger joint three times a week. So they're not, I'm not very loyal to McDonald's. I, I, there's other fast food places that are getting my business. So they, they need to think more about the total spin in the category, not just my transactions versus a household that only goes twice. I think pride has a big part in it too, right? I mean, you talk about Yeti. I sell a lot of Yeti mugs. People come to me and say specifically they want to co-brand their logo with the Yeti mugs. And because there's that sense of pride, people collect Yeti stuff to show that they're part of that cult or that tribe. We are a social species. We thrive on human connection. So we start seeking other places to get that fix for us. So yeah. if it's not about going to church on Sunday, maybe it's about tailgating at the football game on Sunday so that I can associate with like-minded people. It's, yeah. we, are, we are tribe seekers and the clothes we wear, the jewelry we wear, the cars we drive, the venues that we frequent become shortcuts to say, well, we have this in common. Maybe we would have that in common also. So by walking around with a swell water bottle, <laughs> which is 50% more expensive than the oh, yeah. I'm able to say, you have an, a certain aesthetic for design. You have a certain philanthropy about making the world a better place. You yeah. have a certain health consciousness about your water intake. So I can make these assumptions about you that may or may not be accurate, but they're better than everybody just walking around in blandless, labelless yeah. things where I would know, are we going to maybe hit it off? Would you say Carhartt is a cult brand? Absolutely. We honored Carhartt our second year of the gathering. So here's the thing with Carhartt. I have a lot of corporate clients and guys in the field that like the Carhartt jack, the rugged, they use them, the workwear and everything. And all of a sudden, my 14-year-old son wants a Carhartt toque because not they're trendy and cool and everything else. And there is a cult brand in my mind, I think they are. And how, you know, how did it go from these older guys out in the field working it to now these young, I guess, Generation Z? I don't know when you're 14. What's your take on that? Well, it's, it's wonderful. Two things are wonderful about that. So that is the benefit of standing for something is that people who want to associate, and we've seen the same thing with uh, North Face. We've seen the same thing with Vans and Converse shoes and Levi's jackets. I mean, Levi's, was a product of the, I mean, first of all, Levi's has been around also for over a hundred years with the gold rush and they were almost uniform for the military and the world wars, but really kind of the fifties and sixties was the heyday of Levi's as rebel culture. When, when I put on my Levi's today, I just think of them as this is my denim jeans. Like I don't think of myself as a rebel uh, wearing Levi's, but they, that, that was the ethos of that brand. And they, they pride themselves in Levi's headquarters. They have a great picture of the Berlin wall coming down. And a lot of the Germans on the wall with sledgehammers were in Levi's because that was their way of embracing not just America, but just democracy and freedoms and yeah. liberties and things like that. So Carhartt did a brilliant thing in the sense of being super committed to who they stand for. Their blue collar American worker, the guy that has grease under his fingernails or dirt under his fingernails and being unapologetic about the lack of sex appeal. And then when this urban culture came around and embraced it, they actually spun off a division that just caters to that group now because they realized that we don't know enough about that audience. We're not listening well to what they want. And so rather than just be grateful that somebody else started buying their stuff, they said, let's lean into that 
and start servicing this new community with some of our tips and tricks and tools and whatnot that we have within the marketing department. Well, I mean, I just love talking about this stuff. We could do it all day. So Chris, just before we go, can you quickly tell us about Kumano and The Gathering? Two things that you sort of co-founded. Tell us about The Gathering, first of all. So The Gathering is a society. Uh, We're really trying not to call it an event because it is an event. It's a three-day event that happens in Banff every year. We don't want it to just be this wonderful three days in this magical place. We want it to be a group, a a community, if you will. Um, We call it the Society of Cult Brand Leaders. And if you come to The Gathering, you're sort of initiated into that society. But we have uh, social content. We have podcasts. We have micro events. We have one-on-one coaching and training. So there's a whole ecosystem kind of around the gathering, but it's simply the premise is don't take Chris's word for it. Hear firsthand from the most cult-like brand leaders on the planet as they candidly and transparently tell the tales of how they built the most remarkable iconic businesses that we adore. It will be happening next April, knock on wood, uh, COVID permitting. Uh, there'll also be a virtual event and mode event. So anybody can go to cultgathering.com to get more information about that. It's in its uh, ninth year. I love that because you know what? Honestly, that was the motivation for me doing this podcast to get all brilliant minds like yourself to come together and share what you're sharing. I totally love that idea. It's been, I mean, it's my favorite three days of the year. What it started as versus what it has become has been a pleasant surprise and a testament to a great team members uh, that have kind of taken it on. The gathering is a, is a manifestation of co-creation. It's, it's sponsors, it's been attendees, it's been mm-hmm. brands that have chosen to participate, all volunteering their time and effort to be a part of it to kind Amazing. of make it what it's become. And then Kumano, is that how you pronounce it? Nope, it's a communo. It's communo. Like a com- it's like a commune, a derivative <laughs> okay. of a commune. So we have a cult. No, it's not a cult. <laughs> one's a cult and one's a commune. Okay. Yes. So communo funny. is simply, a, it's a talent management platform. We, we are firm believers that the single biggest macro socioeconomic trend over the next decade will be the rise of the entrepreneur and the demise of the traditional, not only the traditional employee, but particularly within the advertising and marketing space, the demise of a traditional holding company. So it used to be, you know, for over 50 years, kind of big businesses that wanted to get good work done had to go to big Madison Avenue agencies to have that accomplished. And the reality is now everything's been democratized. The best talent in the world doesn't want to work for an agency or doesn't want to live in New York or doesn't even want to work for a brand full-time. They kind of are hired guns. And so Camino is, is, is simply a, a platform that allows people that are looking for amazing and temporary creative digital talent can find the practitioners of that talent. Uh, so that's, you know, those types of platforms have been around for a long time in like the IT space. People have been offshoring work to the Philippines or India or whatever yeah. for years and years. It's, it's more novel to do it for your copywriting or your video or your brand strategy or your television commercials. So it, we're really excited about that. Camino is about three years old. COVID has been a huge benefit for Camino Have downsized. So they still need to get the work done, but they fired their people. And a lot of agencies have gone out of business. And so there's just more talent sitting on the sidelines than ever before. And there's more open-mindedness to remote workers, non-traditional employment uh, contracts, et cetera. So we're, we're thrilled with Camino as well. And so that's growing. And so do you bring the customers and the talent together on this platform? What's your role in this? Yeah, we, we like to say if Tinder and LinkedIn had a baby, it would be 
Immuno. So LinkedIn is the professional sense of it, and Tinder is the ease of it looks good, looks good, doesn't look good. Let's find each other, let's hook up and, and have a date. And do you vet out the talent? Anybody's able to create a profile and to go on there. Once you start making claims, we'll vet you out. So mm. if you're claiming you're a 10-year designer that worked on these brands, we'll want to see that portfolio, those case studies, get some professional references. But I mean, things like art designer or a copywriter, we kind of vet the accuracy of the profile, but I'm not here to say you're a shitty To judge it, yeah. You're a good one. Wow, that's great. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, with COVID right now, I'm sure there must be a great opportunity and people can work from home and do it all remotely. So that's yeah. awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Chris, if someone wants to learn more about you and about what you're doing and how you can help them. What's the best way for them to get a hold of you? I mean, you can follow my daily rants on my LinkedIn, or you can just reach out to me at cultideas.com is our website. All the eight cult brand principles are articulated there. And uh, you can do a scorecard to see how well you think that you're doing. Uh, or you can reach out to us for a consultation. Awesome. Well, that was great. Well, thank you again. And good luck with everything and with your kids at home. How are your kids doing? You know, I really empathize with this generation. That, uh, you know, that's a struggle. I think that they're having to develop new routines and find ways to be self-motivated and certainly social connection. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And uh, hopefully next time I see you, we'll be in person. Yes. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs> And there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe even learned a few things to help you with your branding. And most of all, I hope you had some fun. This podcast is a work in progress, so please make sure to rate and review what you think and please subscribe to Branding Matters on whatever platform you listen to. And if you want to learn more about the Branding Badass, that's me, you can find me on social media, whether it be Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn under, you guessed it, branding badass. Thanks again. And until next time, here's to all you badasses out there.